Okay, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Acts 27, verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, it gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they slowly they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they, were, they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. 
But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're coming into the home stretch of the book of Acts, and as we come into the home stretch, we might ask, well, what is the score as we're coming into the last inning, so to speak? Well, if we think back, it wasn't very many chapters into the book of Acts when uh, the Jews in Jerusalem decided to prosecute uh, the young Christian movement, and those Christians had to scatter throughout the Mediterranean world. From there, we saw Peter arrested and then having to go on the run after which he vanishes in the history of the New Testament. We never hear from him again. Paul has been beaten and abused in virtually every city he's visited, often being kicked out violently. And now we arrive at uh, post his trials, he's headed to Rome and uh, faces his third shipwreck. Sailing in the Mediterranean in the winter was a very pre precarious enterprise. In fact, uh, it was largely thought that no one should attempt it between, say, October and May. And a nor'easter on the Mediterranean in the winter is essentially a hurricane. So Paul is facing uh, an incredibly dire situation. And if we take stock of the entire book of Acts in that fashion, we see a lot of suffering. We see a lot of, uh, a lot of stories and plays that don't look like wins. Right? We say, here's, here's the one true God uh, coming in the flesh, sending out his message to all people to redeem them unto himself, right? This is his, uh, you know, his, uh, this is his perfect play, so to speak. And the cross and resurrection, extension of that. And Acts is a mess. It's suffering after suffering after suffering. And that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. Uh, Randy Letourneau is always asking me for a one-point sermon. And so uh, today's sermon is about how you walk through suffering, what Paul has to teach us about walking through suffering. And that's for him. And it's divided into three subpoints, <laughs> which is the both end of suffering, the sovereignty of God in suffering, and your responsibility in suffering. So the both end of suffering, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. You see how I did that? All right. The both end of suffering. That was a pretty interesting dilemma uh, you might even call it a bit of a, um, a uh, words escaping me, two things clash. Um, dichotomy, uh, I'll just show you rather than stand up here and hum and haw. So uh, if you look at verse 20, you see that all hope has been abandoned, right? Everyone who's on the ship, the sailors who know sailing and know the Mediterranean, have full confidence that the ship is going to be broken apart and it looks like everyone's going to die. That isn't the case, though, because in uh, verses 21 through 25, an angel of the Lord appears to Paul in the night and grants him a vision. What does the vision say? Says, Don't worry. Not everyone is going to be lost. In fact, no one's going to be lost. The ship is going to break apart, but everyone's going to make it through this. And Paul is then able to encourage the crew as a result of that. So note that God has sovereignly revealed that he's going to ensure the life of everyone on the boat. Okay, we'll then drop down to verses 29 and 32, or through 32. 
They're taking soundings of the depth. They realize that they're coming toward land. They're afraid of the ship breaking apart on the rocks. And so some of the sailors say, the best way out of this is to lower the small boat, get into it, and row to shore. What does Paul say? Paul says, if he goes to the captain, he says, if they do this, their plan, right, what's going to happen? Everyone's going to be lost. Now, wait a minute. I thought that God just sovereignly declared that everyone's going to be saved. Now, Paul's saying, no, if you actually act in this fashion, everyone's going to be lost. Well, which is it? Of course, as we ask this question, we're asking the question of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Any good reading of Scripture, right, this comes up over and over again. It's something we struggle with all the time. But it's how do we understand these two things that seem uh, uh, unreconcilable, irreconcilable? Right? How do we understand them? And we have to understand that it's not an either-or. We're not saying that either either God is responsible or man, or either God is sovereign or man is responsible. But we're seeing, saying both God is sovereign and man is responsible. And if you don't hold those things in tension, if you don't decide to live in the mystery without having everything nice and clean and black and white, you're going to end up in an awkward place. You're going to end up in a pretty uncomfortable place. Now we see this uh, mystery played out all the time in the context of Scripture. And for a brief example, we can consider the life of Jacob. Right, Jacob grows up in a disf- dysfunctional home. His father Isaac favor- favors Esau over him. And lots of bad things happen in the family as a result of that. Right? And so what happens? Uh, uh, Jacob's mother, uh, Rachel, favors him. He listens to her. He lies to his brother takes advantage of him. He lies to his father and manipulates him. As a result of his deceit, he has to go on the run, and he'll never again see the mother that he loves. Now, is God sovereign in all of Jacob's duplicity? Well, let's not forget the end of Jacob's story, that he has 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes of of Israel. Not only 12 sons, but of, of the 12, one is Joseph, who is the most stark foreshadowing of the person of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, bar none. And another son, Judah, is the forerunner of the Messiah. This was God sovereign in that. Well, we tend to like to say, well, Jacob's responsible for all that mess, and God's responsible for all that good. But in reality, God's working in the midst of, right, is sovereign over Jacob's bad decisions. Jacob's responsible for his bad decisions, right? And Jacob then makes decisions that uh, further the story, and God's sovereign in the midst of that. It has to be a both and. If you go down the road of either or, you end up in a bad place because if you say, if God is completely in control and sovereign over everything, bar none, then what does it matter what you do? Right? Why are you even thinking about what you do? Because what you do is already set. But if we say, on the other hand, that God is not sovereign and that he's only sometimes involved, right? if you're responsible for all the suffering in your life and remedying that suffering, then you're going to be crushed by the burden that that is. You will be consumed by the next storm that comes upon you. We have to hold, again, in tension, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, even in the midst of our suffering. If God is in control, and at the same time what I do matters, then I can know a peace that passes understanding. 
I can move forward and I can make decisions and I can try to take responsibility for my actions while at the same time having confidence that God hasn't left me out to dry in the midst of my own decisions. If I'm responsible and God is for me, then I can act with assurance. Okay? So this is how we move forward. And this is how we see Paul operating in the midst of suffering, do we not? But he's confident. He believes that God is going to preserve everyone, but he's also leading, saying, no, you can't do that, otherwise bad things will result. He seems pretty solid for a guy who's in the midst of a hurricane, in the midst of a ship that everyone knows is going to be broken apart in some capacity, and they're all going to be swimming at the end of the day. Okay. Well, how then do we really trust, like Paul does, in the sovereignty of God? And what is this, how does the sovereignty of God particularly, and after which we'll consider our responsibility, but how does God's sovereignty encourage us in the midst of suffering? Now, by suffering, sometimes we, we tend to think of different things. Right? Someone this morning came up to me and asked me to end early so that they could make the Chiefs game. And if I go long, right, that may, they might say I'm suffering. Right? That's not the suffering I'm talking about. Okay? And when we're talking about suffering... We're talking about the times in our... This is a good way to get what I'm talking about. When you say to yourself, how would God allow this to happen to me? I wouldn't allow it to happen to my child or my friend. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. right? That place where you say, I really have a hard time reconciling that God is powerful and loving and allows this to befall me because if it befell someone I loved, I would exercise more intervention then I see God exercising in this situation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about suffering in that sense, which is certainly the storm Paul's in, right? Paul's storm is all of our storm. It's every occasion in which we find ourselves in a place of saying, why would God permit this uh, when I would not wish it upon anyone that I loved? Now, here's the quick and easy answer, and this is where we always go when we talk about God's suffering. And I don't mean to belittle it. It's important. Right? Um, but you always get the three J's, right? Joseph, Job, and Jesus. Okay? Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, falsely accused in Egypt and thrown into prison, uh, and after years of suffering, will then eventually rise to the heights of power within Egypt and exercise his power to save his family from famine. Right? And at the end, when he meets his brothers... His brothers confess. They're really scared as to what he's going to do. And he says what? You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Again, we see human responsibility. You were acting in your responsibility for acting with an evil intent toward me. But God rendered this good because that's what he's committed to doing. And this is what we, we confess is God's purpose, even in the midst of our suffering, is that he's always committed to good. He's committed to the good of our growing and being made new in his image and our old self being cut away and the entire world being made new. We also get Job, right, who's thrust into terrible suffering, but that story exposes the weakness and lies of Satan, and Job is ultimately redeemed. And Jesus, of course, who goes to the cross and echoes the story of Joseph in the sense that the people who killed him meant it for evil, But God has told the story, he's allowed the story, he's moved it forward for good. In fact, for the rescue uh, and redemption of the entire world. And if we were to take, we don't have time this morning, but 
Okay, one application from this morning. If you wanted to really, if you wanted your heart to be encouraged and for you to be challenged about the ways in which you think about this world and suffering, you would go home this week and do, just do a word study on suffering. And if, and just do it, in fact, in the New Testament, and if, if you really wanted to abbreviate it, just do it post-Gospels, right? Look at the role that suffering plays in Acts and all the epistles, and you'll be, uh, you'll be scandalized because suffering is essential to the Christian story and to Christian sanctification. In other words, you can't grow in holiness. You cannot be made new without suffering. There's no way forward without it. That's why Peter writes something like this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, what a statement. What is Paul saying? He's saying, first of all, trials come upon you to test your faith. And I'll just quickly assert that you don't really know what you believe until you've suffered. And if you don't know what you believe, you don't really know who you are. So your identity right, and what you believe is both going to be refined through the process of suffering. And then it is this testing by fire, right? Just as we would burn out the impurities in a metal, so the impurities must be burnt out in us, that we would be refined and be actually more precious, be more pure, something that will result in glory and honor right at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we might make application number two here, which is this. Um, application 2A is uh, you need to be more content to sit in suffering. right? The New Testament is saying that suffering is a very good and necessary thing. So you need to be a lot less quick at getting out of it as quickly as possible. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Application 2B is that parents, I want to encourage you to be better at allowing your children to sit in suffering. Okay? That's a pretty difficult thing. No parent likes to see their child suffer. Right? But the challenge, the problem is, is that we're so quick to play Savior and to remedy that suffering that we don't really teach our children to enter into suffering Right? And to actually learn and grow from it. So you might think of an example where, you know, say you have an eight-year-old and your eight-year-old is, is trying to work with the fishing pole and the line is broken and he just erupts in tears and is frustrated and is beating the pole against the ground and it's breaking apart. And you walk in as the dad and you say, what? what's going on? Like this, oh, the fishing pole is broken. It's not doing what you want it to do. And so what does dad say? The dad says, I'll fix this. I'm a fixer. I can make those tears go away. And you'll, every time you look at me for the rest of the day, you'll smile. So he fixes the pole, gives the pole back to the child. child kind of, you know, walks out, no longer in distress, but obviously no longer happy. And in the, in the context of that story, the father never paused to say, well, that's a pretty serious reaction over a broken fishing line. Maybe the problem wasn't at all the fishing line. Maybe the problem was that the eight-year-old was really hurt in the context of school. Maybe he wasn't picked for a team. Maybe his friend betrayed him. Maybe he made a fool of himself in class. Right? And by immediately going to fix the problem and not inviting the child to enter into the suffering that they were experiencing, right, 
you really haven't helped the child, and you've only fed your ego as a dad. Now, we, we have that tendency all the time, and both for our own hearts and for the hearts of our ch- children, right? we need to be willing to allow them to, not only to sit in suffering, but invite them constantly to process suffering. Right? A regular question you should be asking your children is, how is your heart? What is weighing on your heart? What's, what's the one thing that you don't want to talk about with me? And if they are a quiet child and don't like to talk, bribe them. Right? If your child leaves home not being able right, to weigh their own heart and to process that with you, you could have done better. So don't miss that opportunity now and invest and teach them that suffering isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Actually, the worst thing in the world would be for God to remove all your suffering because then you would never change and you would never know who you are. So we're talking about trusting in God's purposes that they are good in the midst of our suffering and allowing ourselves and our children to sit in that. And I heard a little parable this week that might encourage you in that. It's actually not a parable. It occurs on a documentary. Um, I think that's on Netflix. It's about winemaking. And uh, it occurs in France, and they're talking about um, Burgundy and where, where they're making Pinot Noir, which is the terrible, it's considered the most difficult wine to make. Right? It, it requires the greatest balance of a number of different factors, and the fruit has to be um, elite in a number of respects. And so they're talking to this old winemaker uh, from France who uh, is old. Uh, he looks like the vines that he tends. And he holds up his hands, and they, they're, they're gnarled, arthritic, but calloused. He's obviously worked his entire life. And he says the most amazing things. They're asking him, you know, how do you go about making this Pinot Noir? This is the context of the conversation. And he says, uh, you, he says you have to be severe with the vines. You think, what, what do you mean? And he proceeds to say, you really have to be violent with the vines. You have to hack them back to the point where you would almost kill the plant and then it grows back and then you hack it back again and it grows back and then you hack it back again. And he says through that process, the roots are forced to go deeper and deeper. And the deeper the roots go, the better the minerals and nutrients that they receive. And the better the minerals and nutrients, the better the fruit that is produced. And the better the fruit that is produced, the better wine you have. Right? Not a bad metaphor for understanding what's happening to us in the midst of suffering. That we would be hacked back and hacked back and hacked back. Why? Because God is mean? Because he doesn't love us? Or because he desires for us to be brilliant fruit bearers for him and his kingdom? And the only way that will occur is if we're actually hacked back through that process of suffering. And so there must be trust in the midst of suffering. Now, uh, application number three, right, is for some of you, right, we're, now we're back to adults dealing with suffering. And the people I'm talking to are the ones that you don't do suffering. You, well, you might do suffering, but you particularly don't do the pain of suffering. So what you do is uh, you have a couple, of, you know, this could happen any number of ways, but you might be, um, I'm suffering, but that's okay. It makes me stronger and I will handle it, right? You're like the CrossFit of suffering, right? It makes you stronger, there are others of you, and it's really funny because people will come up and say, I just don't know how I get so busy. And as a pastor, you know, you want to be a loving shepherd, but sometimes I really want to say, are you serious? Right? 
You're so busy because you don't want to process your heart. And so you sign up for 15 different things every week so that you never have a quiet moment because you're desperately afraid of entering a quiet moment. In that quiet moment, you would have to reflect. And the last thing you want to do is reflect on the pain and suffering because it's all in a nice Pandora's box that is leaking acid into your soul and devouring you from the inside, but you think you're safe as long as it's closed. That's not trust. That's not believing that God can do something in the midst of your suffering. If you believe that he can actually work it, right, then that's something that you would process, both for your own heart and for the good of the body. And again, a little bit more on this, which is your responsibility in the midst of suffering. Now, I'm not trying to say, right, we all know that suffering is frustrating. There's nothing harder than following God and seeking to be faithful when you, at the end of the day, just don't really feel like he loves you or that he's present. And frankly, I feel a fair degree of frustration at some of these stories. And if you haven't thought about it, I'll make you even more frustrated. Because there are two really frustrating aspects about most passages about suffering that pastors don't tend to mention. But just because I'm frustrated, I'm going to mention them to you. And it invites you to bear my frustration with me. Number one, in Scripture, you always get the end of the story. Right? Joseph's suffering is horrible. You get the reunion with his brothers. You get the victory over all of Egypt. You get the salvation of God's people. Job's story is horrible. You get restitution at the end. Jesus' story is horrible. You get resurrection. Your story is horrible. You may or may not see the end of your story, and you may or may not ever understand the good that's being worked in the midst of it. And that's a hard thing to swallow. Frustration number two is that in most of these stories, you get something pretty cool, like in our story, you get an angel of the Lord appearing to you in the night. I don't know about you, but if I'm in the midst of suffering and some angel appears to me in the middle of the night and says, hey, this is how things are going to play out. Don't worry. This is the conclusion. Everything's going to be okay. That would make suffering a lot easier. But we don't often get that, do we? In some ways, I think, very frankly, it's harder for us. Harder for us to follow in faithfulness, right, without necessarily the firsthand experience of something that is outstandingly miraculous, right, or knowing that we'll have the gift of seeing the completion of the story, right, of how it's all going to be tied up and glorify God and be for the good of us that, we have, that we've gone through it. And so that frustration is there, and I feel that frustration. That 2018 has been a hard year for me. God has felt profoundly distant in a way that's lasted longer than any any time I've had before, but does that mean that I get to check out? Does that mean, oh, God, you're just not showing up in the way I want you to? I'm not experiencing you in the way that I have in the past or would like to. I'm just going to move on. Of course not. And this is the value of uh, being faithful and being responsible even in the midst of our suffering. There's an old uh, story of a woman in a village who loses her son. He lives a few weeks but dies, and she's overwhelmed with grief. In fact, she's almost undone by her level of grief to the point that she wraps the child up, cannot come to terms with bearing the child, and runs around the village asking for someone to help her restore her child. And no one knows what to do, but she comes eventually to one of the elders of the village, and he says, well, there's an old legend of a man in the mountains who has this kind of ability, but no one's seen him in years. And you can go and try to find him, but we have no answer for you here. 
And so she proceeds into the mountains and sees the man, and the man says to her, yes, I'm, I'm the man that you're looking for, and I can offer you help. What you need is a potion. This potion is a special potion, and it requires mustard seeds uh, from a particular house, and the house must be particular in this way. The black sun of suffering must have not come upon this house. If you find the house that hasn't suffered and take mustard seeds from that house and bring them to me, then I can make the potion. And so she proceeds to the village, and she goes house to house and door to door, and she asks their story and asks, have you had suffering? And what happens is the families, the households, begin to tell their stories. In fact, there's no house in the village that hasn't experienced suffering. And they tell her, she hears story after story of people who have lost loved ones and suffered horrible things. And she realizes that she's not alone in her suffering and in hearing the suffering of others. She begins to process her own suffering. She comes to a point where she begins to be able to mourn the passing of her child. And later on, even after more home, she comes to the point where she can bury her child. And it's the process of hearing the grief of others and sharing her own grief and sorrow that she actually experiences a degree of healing. Now, for those of you who know suffering, right, and for those of you who have the temptation or the tendency to close that off and to hold it in a private place, right, this is the invitation right, to you to share it to invite others to engage in that suffering with you and for it to be born uh, together. And in that, there will be healing. Has not Jesus given us a body that we would be invested in one another and love one another? And as Paul says, to fulfill the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens. So if you choose not to have those burdens born, a, you choose to not be faithful to Scripture. You choose to deprive the body of the responsibility to bear those, and you decide to deprive yourself of the healing that can come through the feet and hands of Jesus that surround you this very morning. You think you're safer and protected holding that inside, and in truth, it will do nothing but consume you. Paul believes in our story that God is in control, no one's life will be lost, and the sailor's actions matter, which makes him calm and bold at the same time. And in your suffering, you can also experience the same calmness and trusting God's sovereignty and boldness and understanding that you are responsible. To trust God is to experience more of his presence. You know, I've yet to meet a Christian that I think is mature or that I respect who has, would not say, I have been through a season of the valley of the shadow of death. And it was at that point in time in my life where I decided what I believed and who I was as a result of that belief. And until that happens, right, until you walk and actually enter into the suffering and pursue God and ask and call him to account, whether it's with the psalmist who says, God, what are you doing sleeping? Or with Job who says, God, I wish you would come down and face me like a man. Until you take up your real suffering with God in that fashion, I would suggest that you don't know him. And this, at the end of the day, and this is the last thing that I'll say, is why I am a believer. In fact, my belief, my faith in Christianity probably boils down to one to three things, but this is certainly one of them. 
In the history of the world, there has only been one story told where God himself suffers. There are stories where heroes suffer, and there are stories where demigods suffer. But no other faith or religion has ever put forth where the deity himself chooses to suffer on behalf of his people. It is an entirely unique story in the history of the world. And in that sense, God knows our brokenness, right? Not in just a mental way, but in a passionate, personal way. You know the pain of losing a child, so does God. Do you know the darkness that would swallow you whole in despair? So does God. Do you know what it is to be rejected by your friends and those who love you? So does God. In fact, I don't think there is any suffering that you can claim that God cannot claim first and claim perfect obedience in the midst of. And it's for that reason that we are redeemed. His suffering was the most acute in the history of the world. And as a result of that, his fruit is the most life-giving. We go to partake of it now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood, that you would suffer to death for our benefit. You trusted your Father completely. Would you help us to trust completely, to believe in sovereignty even though when it is so difficult to see, even when it was difficult for you to see, sweating drops of blood and preferring an alternative path, you trusted yourself to the Father who renders good out of all things. So as we come to your table this morning, would you encourage us? Would you meet particularly those who are suffering, particularly those uh, who feel or believe that you uh, don't care or aren't present or don't love them? Uh, Would you remind them that you have loved them to death? And would you meet them at this table this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.